and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we begin our first Nighty Night, The Story Behind the Story, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert Rebecca Lavoie. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to our first ever Nighty Night, the story behind the story episode. This is your host, Rabia Chaudhary, and today I am joined by my first ever guest, Rebecca Lavoy. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rabia. Thank you for having me on your first ever episode. This is very exciting. Well, true crime fans don't need any introduction to Rebecca because she is the producer and host of the very first ever true crime review show. I'm right about that, right, Rebecca? Like ever. I I like to think that it's true. So let's just go with it. (laughs) We'll go with it. Crime (laughs) Writers On, um, which I'm a big fan of. I've been a listener for seven years, as well as being the director of On Demand Audio at NHPR, where she oversees the production of all of their podcasts, including Outside In, Civics 101, and now Bear Brooks Season 2. Big, big podcast. Rebecca is also the co-writer of five true crime books and the host of the Netflix podcast, You Can't Make This Up. But most importantly, Rebecca is my dear friend and has been the audio producer of my own criminal justice podcast, Undisclosed, for seven years. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming on. You know, it's really interesting to be on this podcast with you, Rabia, because this is very different uh, context that I'm used to talking to you in. And I've been listening to this show and it is so creepy <laughs> and you are so wonderful at it. And I, I don't know, it's really exciting to be a part of it. So oh, thank you for thank having you. me again. Well, thank you for listening. Anytime a friend says, I listen to your, I'm like, actually, for some reason it, it stresses me out, but it's also really thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> so Rebecca, um, Some people may or may not know this, but both you and I got started in the podcast industry and specifically true crime podcasting, um, kind of thanks to Serial. So can you talk a little bit about what got you in that game? Sure. So my husband and I, Kevin Flynn and I, had written a few true crime books together. And by day, I worked in public radio. At the time, I was the producer, senior producer of a daily talk show, like a magazine talk show, the kind of thing where you interviewed people and like did narrative segments and stuff. And my true crime writing life was very separate from my public radio life because, you know, that kind of journalism, straight journalism at the time sort of looked down on the true crime genre. It was Mm. seen as, you know, at the time, 2010, 2011, 2012, kind of like trashy. Like it was kind of definitely not considered mainstream journalism. Um, And then the podcast Criminal came out. Uh, I don't know if you remember that show. It's still a big show. It came out in 2013. And it was the first ever public radio show because it was made at WUNC originally um, about true crime. And I said to Kevin, like, we have to get on that podcast. And we did. (laughs) And then- Oh, oh, um, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Yeah. One of the first episodes, episode 10 or 11, it's called Dear Sheila. It's about a female serial killer here in New Hampshire that Kevin wrote about and corresponded with. Um, And then when Serial came out, I was listening to it voraciously. Kevin was not, but I kept begging him to. (laughs) Um, And then I was also listening to the not very good Slate show about the podcast. I remember that. Yeah. And when Kevin finally started listening to it, he was like, 
dude, like we should make a show about cereal. We're journalists. Uh, we do true crime. The slate one is terrible. Like we should do one. And so we did, but we didn't start until episode 10. Uh, um, and that was actually how we started Crime Raiders on. It used to be called Crime Raiders on Serial. And we actually were sort of dissecting the journalism in the episodes, talking about the case itself, talking about, you know, the you know, sort of the legal stuff, because our co-panelists, one of them is a former defense investigator. So we talked about many aspects of the case and the journalism behind it. And then when that podcast ended, we sort of went on to other true crime media and, and did the same. Crime is kind of at the heart of every great story ever told. I mean, like, you can go back to the Bible, but yep. Shakespeare, there's no great stories told without some criminal element. But that's also why we're talking about it today when we're talking about a Nighty Night Stories, because when we envisioned this show— what we really realize is like the stuff that creeps me out, the, some of the scariest stuff is like real stuff. It's it's like the stuff that's happened, you know, cases that we um, obsess about. Uh, I mean, like, you know, there's so many cases I've read that or I've learned about through the news that have made me change my behavior slightly. Like, I don't just open the door when somebody shows up. I mean, like things like that, because um, this is stuff that has and can happen, like terrible things. And I think the terrible things that people do to each other are so much scarier than like supernatural monsters and stuff like that. And so that's why we have decided to base a lot of our 99 stories in actual real life events. And I think the feedback we've gotten from listeners is like their favorite part of the episodes is getting the postscript because they'll listen to mm. a story and be like, well, this is just crazy. This, you know, how, how is any of this? And then you get to it and it's like, oh, this actually happened kind of sort of, right? Like it's a, if not yeah. directly based, but loosely based. So now we're going to be doing these much deeper dives into those stories that we just kind of summarized in a couple of paragraphs at the end of the episode. And we're starting off the series with the true case behind our episode titled Down by the River. And Rebecca, you said that you got a chance to listen to it, right? I did. Yes. So that episode, the author of the episode decided to narrate that story from the point of view of like the psychopathic protagonist. And he is telling the story of how he led to the murder of the most popular kid in his high school by first befriending him and then framing another kid for the murder, all so that he could be the most popular kid in the high school. It seems very far-fetched, but you know, we know there are stories that in which teenagers have been really vindictive and manipulative. And the real life story that this is based on is really, really horrific. So let's get into it. So let me start off by saying that the sources I used for this, and I know a lot of podcasts will put sources at the end. I want to put them right at the top. The sources that I use heavily for this case were Wikipedia, for the Montanans for Justice um, website, and for from the independent record. And so this story, Down by the River, is based on the 1979 murder of Kim Neese. Now, when I reached out to you, Rebecca, I told you a little bit about that this is the case we're going to do. Had you heard about this? I hadn't uh, before doing a dive after listening to your episode, no. When we talked before recording, you said that the, it kind of like rang a little bell, like the story seemed familiar. It did seem familiar because it is not dissimilar from, I don't, you know that I, Kevin and I also do a podcast that you didn't mention in your intro called These Are Their Stories, which is about <gasps> oh, law and order and SVU. I am so sorry about that. Oh, no, that's okay. Uh, it's, it's actually Kevin's show, so it's okay. I'm mostly, a, I mean, I'm, I'm on it every week, but I'm kind of a guest on it. Um, and on that show, we do sort of like a comedic breakdown of episodes of the of Law and Order and SVU. And there's an SVU episode that I've been wanting to do on that show forever. It's called Mean. It's from season. It's from season five of SVU, and it's about a bunch of popular girls who, spoiler alert, kill another popular girl basically because she's 
popular and they stop her in the trunk of a car. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying this with a smile on my face because SVU is obviously very cheesy and, you know, the yeah. approach to that show is on, honestly over the top. According to the Law & Order Wiki community, that episode is not based on this crime, but a different crime, which sounds a lot different than the episode. This crime sounds much more similar to that season five episode called Mean. So, Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah. I haven't watched SVU in a long time, but I want to go check out that episode, see how similar it is to this case. But so let's talk a little bit about what happened in this case. In the early morning of June 17th, 1979, in the town of Poplar, Montana, High school senior Kim Neese was found beaten to death on the shore of the Poplar River. So Kim was had just graduated, literally like two weeks before this, she had just graduated as the school's valedictorian. She was beautiful and popular, and you can actually look up her um, photographs on Google. And she was about to leave that small town and head off to college. I mean, it seemed like she had a lot ahead of her. And, you know, I mean, I remember those days, like, between high school graduation and starting college. Those sum- that summer is like a magical summer for everybody. Salad um, days, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just kind of, like, killing time, spending time with, you know, your friends that you grew up with and just, like, you know, preparing for big things. So the night before Kim was killed, she went to go see a movie with her boyfriend. His name was Greg Norgard. They went to a local drive through theater. Right after the movie, Greg dropped Kim off at home, went to a local bar to drink. Kim then headed out of the house. And a few hours later, so this is around 4 a.m., police were driving past this park that's close to the river. And they saw a truck park there, but they didn't take a closer look. They just figured kids are hanging out. Kids hang out there all the time. A few hours later, the officers passed the same way, like around 7 a.m., and that truck is still there. And so they're like, okay, it's time to take a closer look. That's when they discovered, um, they looked inside the truck, they saw blood inside the car, they saw blood outside of the truck on the passenger side leading away from it. There were clumps of hair, and there was like a drag trail. Like you could tell that something or somebody had been dragged from the passenger side of the truck and dragged all the way uh, down to the water. So they followed this trail, and that's where they found Kim laying Mm -hmm. face up in the water. So Kim was pulled out of the water. An autopsy was conducted. She had massive injuries to her head. It looked like she'd been bludgeoned with a blunt, heavy object. And she had over 30 blows to the head, had died from skull fractures and brain injuries. Interestingly, she had not been sexually assaulted or raped. And the medical examiner even determined that it didn't seem like she had had been involved in any sexual activity at all at any time recently. So, of course, the police are trying to backtrack and find out, like, how Kim got there. And when they spoke to her family, her younger sister, Pam, who was home at the time that Kim had been dropped off by Greg, said that Kim did come home around midnight. And then she left 15 minutes later in their father's truck. The police were able to also find some witnesses that saw Kim sitting between 12.30 a.m. and 1 a.m. sitting in that truck alone at a gas station across the street from the high school. Another witness said that she saw Kim talking to some guy while she was parked there. The guy was standing outside the truck and talking through the window. Yet another person said they saw Kim driving a, a little after 1 a.m. towards the river, the bridge that leads to the river. And then yet another witness said that he saw her driving in the area going in that direction, but that she had people in the truck with her. Hmm. So I have a question. Can I ask questions along the way? You can jump in anytime. 
So this raises a lot of questions for me. So this is in the era, obviously, long before cell phones and before people were communicating with each other while they were doing other things, right? So she's at the movies with her boyfriend, but it sounds like there was already a plan in place for her to meet somebody afterwards, or as soon as she got home, you know, she made a call or somebody called her to meet them after this movie date, right? Yeah, that's actually a great observation. So... Apparently later, the police, when they were focusing on the boyfriend as a potential suspect, found out that they had gotten in a fight, Mm. and that's why he dropped her off. So their original plan might have been that they were just going to hang out for the rest of the night, but the plan got cut short because they got in a fight. Hmm. But you're right. It could have been that when she got home, she made—well, I guess there's a couple of possibilities. She called some folks, made a plan to meet up with somebody, or— that this is just kind of like where the kids hung out. At the gas station? At the gas station or at the river. Like, you know, there were certain places that the kids knew to, like, meet up and hang out. Yeah. I'm assuming, and it's a fair assumption, that she, if she was with people at that gas station, they're probably other high school students. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, but, but there's nothing in the record, nothing that I found to suggest that she had made any phone calls and nobody in her family reported that. Yeah. So, but, you know, if if that was not the case and she just ended up, like, meeting the people who would end up, like, killing her, it's just yeah. a horrific, like, yeah. kind of coincidence. So it could have been just like a, you know, because this is a thing, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, pre-cell phone, there were hangouts, you know, cruising spots, oh, yeah. hangouts where you just drove your car and parked and, like, that was where people got together. And this was across from the high school. But it does make me wonder about, you know, hey— guys, where, what are you doing tonight? Do you want to meet up stuff? But if this were a premeditated murder too, it's like, I don't know. It's either something went horribly right. wrong or, right. um, I don't know. This is just, just or, or maybe something happened at the movies and she like, it's a drive-in movie, right? So it's like. It was a drive-in movie theater. But here's the thing. Yeah. You're right though. I mean, it seems like it had to have been premeditated only to the, ex- I mean, to the extent at least that they had to have a weapon. Right? right, like whoever killed her had to have a weapon. She right. wasn't, you know, beaten to death with punches or a local tr- like a tree branch, like a blunt, likely metal object was used to beat her to death. So, who's walking around with one of those? You know, right. uh, what kids are ha- going? You know, unless something out of a car, maybe. Correct. Yeah, tire. Yeah. Tire tools. Well, I'm also thinking about the drive-in theater situation. So if you've ever been to a drive-in theater, Robbie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you ever, if I went when I was in high school, we have one left here in New Hampshire, too, which we occasionally go to, believe it or not. <laughs> Love them. But when, yeah, when I went in high school, like, you don't stay in your car, especially if your friends are there. You get out, right. you walk around. It's actually also a hangout spot. So it's not unlikely that if she was there with her boyfriend, that she also met up with people there and found out that there was hanging out going on later and joined that hanging out that was already happening later that maybe they had met pe- met up with people at the at the drive-in theater. That's entirely possible. So from what I've read, when they questioned her boyfriend, Greg, he didn't report anything like that, but it doesn't mean he had to have been with her. She could have been wandering around by herself. He did say that they had gotten in an argument. He didn't say that she had gotten into any kind of a altercation with anybody at the drive-thru or that he knew of any plans at all. Hmm. But the other thing is, so let's talk a little bit about the crime scene because I think the crime scene is really telling. So to the investigators, it seemed like she had been attacked while she was still in the driver's seat. Hmm. dragged through the passenger side door and down to all the way in the river where they found her. She was right like by the shore. Hmm. There was no sign of a robbery. Uh, Again, no sign of sexual assault. And it seemed like 
she was bludgeoned mostly like in the car and around the car. There were, there were, it seemed like there was so much forensic evidence because there was yeah. just dozens of fin- unidentified fingerprints in the truck. There was a bloody palm print on the outside of the passenger door, like right around the handle. Yeah. And so, you know, that to me, I mean, it sounds like there was somebody in the car with her, right? Who attacked yeah. her. Like, yeah. like say this person was in the passenger seat. They attacked her while she's in the driver's seat. Then they open up their passenger door and drag her out, continuing to beat her. Yep. Whoever got in this car with her got in the car with that weapon, mm-hmm. right? Right? Like they already had that weapon ready <clears throat> to hurt her. So I don't know. It's it, But you're right. It's like, how do you premeditate something? Unless they just- yeah, Do we know. know, is this one of those trucks with the back seat, like a, a truck with a cab? Or was it a truck that's just like the front? seat do we know because sometimes in the back seat there might be like you know the tire changing tools or something but no you're you're right that is the the heavy object thing is the question i have uh obviously it's big and whether and obviously the person i i also agree with you that it was likely someone in the passenger seat because if she was attacked through the driver's side door they wouldn't then walk around the car open the passenger side and pull her out of that side that's a very unlikely yeah. Um, set of circumstances. And it, and it seems like that bloody handprint. So they drag her out. I mean, the, the truck's doors were closed when the police got there. So they got, they dragged her out. The attacker already has blood on their hands. This palm print did not match Kim. So whoever, somebody there had blood on their hand and closed the truck door on the passenger side. I haven't seen anything to suggest that the truck had a separate cab in the back and it was her father's truck, and I don't believe yeah. anybody in her family reported anything missing from the truck that could have been used as a weapon. In fact, my from what I've read, I don't think a murder weapon was ever identified. Well, what about a rock or a branch? Because if it was a river, that's something that you could dispose of fairly easily right there in the river. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's possible. Well, then the scenario changes, right? So you either get down there with somebody in the truck with you, they get out, mm-hmm. look for a weapon, come back <laughs> to attack well, you. Well, that or also changes, somebody- it, that that makes it a more, it could be spontaneous crime. They could right. beat her up, she could be knocked yeah. out, then they could decide to murder her with something that's at the scene already. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, then leave the car, find a rock, finish, you know what I mean? It, it kind of yeah. changes, it makes the scenario less premeditated, more potentially spontaneous. Oh, absolutely. Detective Lavoy, case closed. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job, Rebecca. I mean, this this is all those years of true crime and SVU have are paying off. Yeah, or maybe she because you know, like there were two different witnesses who saw her driving towards a river. One saw her alone, yeah, and one saw her with people in the truck. And right. so even that's unclear. The yeah. one who said he saw her driving and he didn't see anybody else in the truck. It is dark. It's late at night. Maybe he didn't see him. But he also said there were a couple of cars in front of her, and it almost seemed to him like she was following them. Right. So, you know, but there could have been folks hanging down by the river park already. Yeah. So the investigation, you would think, you know, there's just so much forensic evidence, right? There's like blood everywhere. There's hair. There's fingerprints. This should not be that difficult a investigation, but the FBI took charge of the case pretty much from off the bat. And but it was a, it was a small office, it's a two man field office. They interviewed lots and lots of witnesses. Originally narrowed it down to two suspects. One, of course, was the boyfriend because 
you know, they did have an argument that night and that's the kind of the natural place to start. But apparently his fingerprints and palm print did not match the crime scene ones. He also was seen by lots of folks at the bar he went to drink at. So he was ruled out. Somebody else, this young man named Albert Gooch Kern, who was a couple of years older than Kim, lived in the area, didn't have a great reputation, you know, got into all kinds of just local small town trouble. Uh, And the reason the police looked at him was because somebody across the river, and I'm assuming it's not a very big river, said that they had heard someone scream that night, no Gooch. Hmm. Like, you know. But it turned out the police were told by somebody that she was told yeah. That somebody else heard it. So they went, when they went to the original source, the original source said, nope, never said that, not true. So Gooch is out of the, out of the scene too. But was he ever, do you know if his fingerprints were ever taken? Was he ever really investigated or was it just like, no, I didn't say that and that was that? I, uh, I'm not sure. I'm okay. not sure about like um, whether or not they try to match Be- him, but I'm guessing they would have. I mean, that would have been like well, the you natural hope so, person. Because you hope a lot so. of a lot of people would say, no, I didn't say that in an effort just to be like, I don't want to get involved. It's one of the things that people don't understand when they listen to cases like this, you know, and I, I hear this all the time, too, even when people talk about serial, right? It's like, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't someone have gone to the police or whatever? The extent to which... People will avoid being involved in something where the police are involved is astonishing. Most people go their whole lives having no contact with the police. And if they can avoid ever having contact with the police or anything involving the police, they will absolutely avoid having any contact with the police. So it's not unlikely that somebody who said something to a friend that when the police then come to the door would be like, nope, what are you talking about? Didn't didn't say say it. It's not unlikely at all. Yeah, no, 100%. Look, I can't say for sure. We have seen investigations like Adnan's case in which, you know, Hayes' boyfriend was like, oh, I was at work. And the police were like, all right, done deal. They didn't didn't take any fingerprints from him. We believe (laughs) it. I know. (laughs) Even though they had unidentified hair and fingerprints at the crime scene in that case, they did not. So it's not inconceivable that the police were like, well, that's the end of that. I I just don't know. Um, I'm not quite sure. That's not clear from the sources that I was able to access. But, you know, the case went cold, which is so crazy to me, given the amount of forensic evidence. And I think that's another thing that people get confused about because they're like, well, you've got all this stuff. If you run it in the database, you can't know, you know, a lot of people's fingerprints will not appear in databases. Just because you've interviewed two or three or four dozen witnesses doesn't mean you can ask, get fingerprints from each one of them. If you don't consent to give it, they can't force you to give it right like right. They, so fingerprints it would be- are not standard there's not a standard thing someone takes during a police interview it's not right. like today right. a lot of police departments will take you know ask for a cheek swab or whatever but they still don't say like can we fingerprint you like that's not a thing yeah right? and, and even not. the cheek swab thing i mean like yeah it's either and you should say no by the way right. my, you, should my, no. you should say no because you can never take that back yeah. <laughs> say that's my that's my advice to anyone listening I personally would say no, because once your DNA is there, it is there forever. You say no to everything and, you know, and basically ask for a lawyer. As simple as it, look, it's either voluntary, right? So people will, unless people volunteer it and and please ask, would you give it voluntarily, like a fingerprint or a cheek swab or whatever? Otherwise, they need to like literally get a warrant to get that stuff. And so like, you know, you don't have to give it. And and so, but in 1979, you know, they weren't taking cheek swabs, certainly, but they also probably weren't fingerprinting anybody. And so if they, if I don't even know if there was a database then at that point, but if they did have some kind of um, apparatus to run the prints through, 
didn't hit anybody. So they got a bloody palm print, can't match it to anybody. Well, nearly four years go by. And this case takes the craziest twist. I mean, Hmm. absolutely crazy. So one of the people that was questioned in the course of the investigation was a 17-year-old boy named Barry Beach. He lived, like, just a couple doors down from Kim and happened to be dating her younger sister. So he knew he knew Kim. About two or three weeks after the murder, Barry moves to Louisiana to live with his father. Or, or to visit his father and then eventually just moves there, okay? Now, down the line... When the state is looking back at this, it's looking really suspicious to them because they're like, huh, a couple of weeks after this girl's killed, this kid, like, leaves the state, right? Like, it it can look bad, right? So that's something that years later might come back to haunt him. Yeah, but, so- or he could have just, because it was summer, that's the time when <laughs> one would move because yeah. school is out, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know how it is. Like you know yeah, when yeah. when folks decide somebody is guilty of something, oh, every yeah. single move they make. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Looks I have bad. said it many times. If my husband turned up dead, you could look at any text I would have sent him, and they all oh, yeah. look suspicious. Yes, literally. I just like texted a couple of friends the other day, and I said, "I'm having one of those days where I just wish I was single." <laughs> yeah. Does this mean I have to kill my husband or divorce him? <laughs> I texted my husband this morning and said, do you want a breakfast sandwich? He said, no. And I said, literally, what is the matter with you? Like, is that not, it's very suspicious. <laughs> everything you do looks suspicious when you're- Look at you how know, full of rage that. she is. She gets trigger mad over everything. For a breakfast sandwich. <laughs> yeah, no, things aren't looking good for us, Rebecca. We got to like keep our men alive, our guys alive. Um, so here's what happened with Barry. Barry moves to Louisiana. He's living with his father- stepmother, and at least one stepsister. I don't know if there's any other kids in the family. At some point, Barry's stepmother calls the police. I didn't know you could do this, like, in relation to what she's going to report, but she makes a complaint that Barry has helped his stepsister, and he's like 21 at this point, helped his stepsister skip school. Like, maybe he Hmm. lied for her or told the school she was sick or something. And this is the craziest thing. First of all, I didn't know you could call the police and complain about something like that. If you're Karen, you can, apparently. I mean, I guess I'm like, is that a thing? Um, But also, the police charged him with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Hmm. Now, when I first read that he was charged with this without any context, I was like, oh, man, what was he doing? Applying like some kid with drugs or alcohol or what? Because it sounds much more like, (laughs) you know, serious than... He's just covered for her when she skipped school. Anyway, the police run a background check. I mean, I just can't believe how seriously they took this. They run a background check on him after the complaints filed, and they realized that he was questioned with respect to the Kim Nees murder in a whole different state. That would come up in a background check? I'm just curious. That <sighs> comes up in a background check that you were questioned in a murder? Is like I, I that, never. That's surprising to me. It almost seems like... It's not like I don't believe it is what I'm trying to say. I there's okay. no way that comes up. <laughs> okay, that's that's what I'm asking because that's not you don't have yeah. a permanent record like you do in high school for your life, right? Right. And if if running a background check does not include calling the police department where you used to live or the FBI and saying, "Hey, do you have any files pertaining to this man?" That just that's not a thing. And there's no Lexus Nexus situation in right. 1980 or whatever or in 83. Here's what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is, so at the time, they, the, the police, there's been three local girls who have disappeared. And 
it's not clear to me from what I could find online whether or not um, they were found murdered at the time. Eventually, apparently, they were. And one of the girls was the daughter of a high school principal. Obviously, this is, you know, terrifying the community. The police are under a lot of pressure. And for some reason, they're also looking at him for maybe he has something to do with these girls hmm. missing and killed. So in connection to that, maybe they called, you know, the police where he used to live and say, has he ever been picked up for anything? And then they're just told that, you know, I mean, that he was questioned. And so now suddenly they've got this kid who is dating the sister of a girl who's brutally murdered. And now this kid moves to Louisiana and suddenly other young girls around the same age are missing. You know, maybe they're like trying to connect these dots, but there's no way they're entering a name into a system or they've got a file that says he was questioned. Like, this is not a thing. Like, you know, that it would be in your background check. But right. So they pick Barry up and they go hard after him. They just interrogate him for like three days straight. And hmm. his father can't figure out like what's going on. He knows um, he's picked up by the police. They cannot reach him. They, they finally on the third day get a lawyer who's able to get to the police station. And by the time the lawyer gets there, he learns that Barry has not only confessed to murdering Kim Neese, but also to murdering the, the girls in Louisiana. Hmm. And what his confession is that he killed Kim because she rejected his sexual advances. Hmm. But remember, she was not sexually assaulted in any way. There's nothing suggests that there was anything sexual about uh, the crime. Yeah, no sexual component at all, right? Yeah. Now, crazy thing. When he was interrogated originally, obviously, he was like, I had nothing to do with any of this, but he basically kind of worn down. And guess what interrogation technique they use, Rebecca? The read technique, the our favorite. Te yes. Yeah, yeah. Is it like the only technique that exists? Because the only one I keep hearing about. <laughs> I, I think it was, the, I mean, it's been the gold standard for decades, right? This is what oh, everybody Since like the 50s. On. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, and it's it's interesting because this is one of those things that's like, you know, passed down generation after generation after generation. And, you know, you hear the, you know, the cops now who speak out against it, you know, who I really, you know, I really appreciate when law enforcement people say, like, I made a mistake. I learned this thing oh, wrong yeah. and I did it and I was wrong. Uh, but they will say, like, this, is, this was the gold standard and the only thing that was taught. And it really, when you watch the videos of the Reed training, they are bananas like <laughs> crazy like yeah if he says he didn't do it that means he did it like they right. they're that crazy like he could the, the suspect could say anything and it means if he says he wants a sandwich that means he did it it's it's really something the re-technique is notorious for producing false confessions and the craziest thing about the re-technique is that it's, it was developed by obviously a man named i think his name is paul reed but the very first time he used it successfully to convict a man of killing his wife, that conviction was later overruled and that man was exonerated because right. it was a false confession. Right. And even though uh, this technique produced a false confession from like right out the gate, like it just became a tool for law enforcement to know that you can get people to confess to anything. And so it does involve a lot of like intimidation, there's coercion, there's good cop, bad cop. There's like just wearing people down physically by keeping them like just, 
you know, for hours and hours and days and days, not letting them sleep. Promises of freedom and release of pressure. Like if you'll be helping All yourself. All kinds of things. Only if. Yeah. Only if you do this, you'll finally be free. You can finally yeah. go. Sometimes it's like you can go home if only you. And right. it's like an right. exhausted, starving, thirsty, tired person. Yeah. You can see your mom only if you confess to this murder. And it of course, works. Be in prison for the rest of your life. Yeah. But we'll let you see your mom. It's it's really, really insane. Yeah. And, and, and it works particularly well on certain vulnerable populations, which includes young people. I mean, like a lot of the wrongful conviction cases we've seen are people who are like between the ages of like 17 and 23. This technique's used on them. It's much easier to wear them down. And Barry was right there in that age range when they got him. Now, he immediately, though, after giving the confession, said that I just said it. He told his lawyer, I just told him what they wanted to get him off my back. I did not do this. I got to say, when I started looking at this case, what I knew initially about it was like this really horrific crime. I didn't know there was like this entire other story behind it involving really what I think is truly a wrongful conviction. They didn't actually charge him with the Louisiana murders. This is so crazy hmm. because it turned out he couldn't have committed them. He wasn't even yeah. in the state when <laughs> when the girls disappeared. So that confession they decided was bad, but right. I'm guessing the, the Kim Neese confession they decided was fine. Montana prosecutors are very happy with the Kim Neese confession and they charged him and prosecuted him based on his confession and nothing else. Now, like many false confessions, that confession itself was like factually completely inaccurate. Not, almost nothing he confessed to matched the actual crime or the crime scene. He said he strangled her, but there's no evidence of strangulation. I mean, you know, there, he threw in all kinds of details, nothing matched. And, you know, so and as soon as, like, he retracted his confession, he's maintained his innocence going forward. He, he mm. pled not guilty at trial, and he said this confession was coerced, that he was innocent. But he was convicted, and he was sentenced to 100 years. Now, wow. Yeah. Again, this is like back in the early mid-80s when absolutely nobody could believe that anybody would confess to anything they didn't actually do, right? Like, I think as of even 10 years ago, most people would have thought that. Me included. Yeah, same. But the prosecutor, so the way the prosecutor convinced the jury was that he said that Barry gave details in the confession only the killer could have known. We all know it's a lie. Prosecutors do that, especially like in opening and closing. They can say all kinds of crazy shit. That's um, incredible to me. Yeah, that's the thing that's incredible to me is that prosecutors entering opening and closing can say things like, you will learn X. And then they never yeah. present evidence of X. And at the end, they can say, uh, they can just say something that was not presented and, and right. like, like just get away with it. Like put an end cap to the story, like like the bad chapter that ends a mystery that makes no sense. Like they can just do that in a trial. It's it's astonishing to me. Right. Because opening closing is are not considered evidence. I mean you mm. can you can there can be objections to it, but you know, human psychology, you know, they say, you know, so I've done a lot of public speaking. They say people remember the first thing and the last thing. They remember almost nothing in the middle. Right. And murder trials can go on forever and there's a lot of details. And I have sat in trials where juries half asleep. And it's in some courtrooms, judges will allow juries to take notes and in other ones they won't. And so imagine you're a jury, you gotta absorb all this. But there's also this real strong belief because most don't believe that a prosecutor can literally just lie in the closing. They're like, he or she wouldn't have said that unless that was actually true. Like, it's, Unless they knew uh, something, right? Right, right. It's just unfathomable. And one of the things this prosecutor also said in the closing was that a pubic hair that was found on Kim's sweater um, was Barry's. He made that, like, deter he, he said that, like, kind of unequivocally. A pubic hair? 
Yeah, like this little curly hair. But a couple of things. There was a her sweater had been folded, and it was like not. She wasn't wearing the sweater. They found some, I guess, a hair on it. And during the trial, the state's lab scientist told the jury that the hair was similar to Barry. However, like so much crap science we know about now, hair analysis, first of all, is a very shady field. But this guy in particular was actually found incompetent hmm. in, in the science, and that's air quotes, of hair analysis. It turned out he had helped wrongfully convict two other men based on his forensic analysis who were <sighs> actually exonerated. So this guy didn't know what he was doing. And then, you know, in all of these cases, when you kind of drill down at the different people involved, there's always like so much more there. Like in this case, the lead interrogator who got that confession from Barry was also had just a terrible record. He was accused of misconduct in so many cases, suspended multiple times. I mean, there was just, you know, everything that could lead to kind of a little train wreck happened for Barry. And then you have stuff like, you know, the evidence that should look good for Barry. Like, oh, that's not his palm print. Right. None of his fingerprints are in the car. Nothing. No forensic evidence tied him to it. Prosecutor dispensed with that by saying that, oh, that palm print, it was the victim's, but it was a lie. That was a lie. Isn't that isn't that disprovable? Like, don't they have the victim's palm prints on file? Yes, they do. And initially, the forensic testing showed that the, the palm print was not hers. However, in a closing argument, he, that's, he just kind of like put, you know what I mean? He just kind of like a throwaway line. Yeah, of course it wasn't his, but it was probably, it was a victim's. And if the jury was not paying close attention or if the defense wasn't able to successfully like talk, like see what people have to understand is like a lot of what happens in this trial is going to be about like what the prosecutor and the defense counsel were able to present in court. Right. How much information the jury get about the palm print? I have no idea. I don't have the trial transcripts. Did it could be? And if I if I was the prosecutor in the case, I would never bring that palm print up right. during the trial because it doesn't match the person I'm convicting. If I'm defense counsel, I would hone in on it. But maybe they didn't. They might have just missed it because I've seen that kind of stuff happen too. Right. And you really can't underestimate the power you have just by being the prosecutor because the jury yeah. assumes that you know things that they don't know. Yeah. And, and also, that's just, they, that's just an assumption. Yeah. That you know things. But also, I really think people think that, like, it's against the law for the prosecutor to lie. Right. Like, like they couldn't do that ethically. They couldn't get away with it. Right. And we wouldn't be going through all of this if we likely right. didn't have the right person. Exactly. That's always, yeah, that's always yeah. something that goes through juries' minds, right? Yeah, yeah. They've done their due diligence. Why would they spend years prosecuting somebody, you know, months on a trial unless it was the right person? Anyway, Barry's convicted, gets 100 years, continues to maintain his innocence. In 2000, Centurion Ministries took the case. Have you heard of them, Rebecca? No. Oh, okay. They're a, quite a well-known innocence organization. They do kind of the same thing that the Innocence Project does. They have worked with hundreds and hundreds of defendants and clients and helped to exonerate many dozens, in fact. So they took the case and uh, they started, they had to do what anybody does in these cases, which is kind of reinvestigate everything. And they uncovered evidence that, first of all, there were a lot of rumors around town, but people actually came forward and said that they had personal knowledge of the fact that there was a group of girls who had actually attacked Kim niece, girls mm. that Kim went to school with. Mm. One of the people who gave this statement to Centurion Ministries was actually the brother of one of the girls. And another girl said that she was actually present at that that night she was there during the time of the murder. Yeah. Big deal. These are this is 
Big, big new evidence, right? This is a small town, right? Yeah, it's a small town. Okay, so this this doesn't surprise me at all. So one of the books that Kevin and I wrote was called Our Little Secret, and it was about a high school boy, now a man, obviously, who shot and killed somebody in 1989. And he was eventually arrested in like 2005. By the way, this was the same weekend that the bodies were found in the barrels in the Bear Brook State Park. And this crime happened like within a mile of that. So this is why this case went unsolved. One of the reasons for like 20 years, because that investigation was happening at the same time. Anyway, he told so many people (laughs) that he shot this guy. So many people knew. And, you know, by the time he was finally arrested, everyone in our town was like, yeah, we knew about that. And I'm like, every, and that was like a huge premise of the book. That's what was called Our Little Secrets. Because, and that doesn't surprise me because young people, especially like, you know, sort of the lizard brain part of a young person's brain is like the inability to not tell. It's just like, it's not there, the governor. And then also probably very many versions of the story were told to lots of different people. So because it's so inconsistent, there's no one cohesive version that that sticks that everyone is like, okay, we got to go to the cops because it's probably so many different versions and so many different rumors out there, right? Right. You also have the element here where it's like multiple people, apparently multiple girls were there. So that increases the likelihood that people are going to hear stuff and they're going to be told stuff. And and also maybe there might be some deflection by some of the girls that it wasn't me, it was so-and-so, it was so-and-so. But I'm guessing a lot of people were like, well, the police are investigating. The FBI is on it. Like we don't have to tell them what we think or what we heard because the FBI's got it, right? Like they're handling this and I'm sure they have heard the same kind of stuff. Mm. But people close to the girl, I mean, like the girl who said she was there that night or the brother, I mean, I'm also guessing back in 1979, they were not so comfortable. You know, they were terrified. They didn't want to tell the police they didn't come forward because they didn't come forward to like yeah. 2000, like a long time later, yeah. like past 2000. So what's interesting is one of the witnesses also told um, this investigator that on the night of the murder, around 5 a.m., remember they found Kim's body around 7 a.m., around 5 a.m., one of these girls who is part of that rumored group called him and said, Kim's been killed. Hmm. So, you know, already had knowledge. This is a person who said, you know, already had knowledge of this murder before. But, you know, in a court of law, that's also hearsay. So there's that. Anyway. You know, you've got all this forensic evidence, never got DNA tested because in 79 it wasn't a thing. So this organization submits a petition to get all the forensic evidence DNA tested in 2005. And the state responds and says, there's nothing left. Like they destroyed everything. Yeah. Crazy. Hmm. I mean, some states never destroy evidence in murder cases, right? And some do, like after a certain period of time. Do you understand like how... States, that's just just policy, right? From state to state? I think that, yeah, I do think that some states have policies and I think some states don't. And I think some jurisdictions just have, I think some, you know, like maybe a certain county or certain city just has a certain policy, but it's not like there's no regulation around it is what I'm trying to say. It's just like, that's how they operate. But in a case- wasn't this an FBI case? I mean, wouldn't the FBI have some of that evidence? You would think, but it sounds like that the response came from the state. It could be, it could be that the FBI, I mean, obviously the FBI is working with the state. The only reason for the FBI really to involved here. This is not a cross state line. There's nothing federal. There's no federal element of this case that wouldn't, you know, I'm guessing it's because the local jurisdiction just did not have 
the the manpower or the expertise to work right. on a case like this, right? right? But I'm gu- I am guessing that they continue to be the custodians of things like the physical evidence and the files and stuff. Um, at the end of the day, you know, Barry didn't was not convicted in a federal court of law. It was a Montana case. Mm. So the state says that the evidence was destroyed, but you know, I mean, like the other thing is like when there's been a, a conviction already, and we're talking about twenty years later. What I understand is like a, a lot of jurisdictions will keep it for 10 years in case there's some kind of post-conviction appeal or anything, but they won't keep it past 10 years. But it's not like it's, you know, unless you affirmatively get laws passed state by state saying that you can never, <laughs> ever destroy physical evidence. I mean, it's, it it just can't be held on to forever, frankly, right? right. But right. but it's really tragic for somebody in Barry's Petition. So DNA petition's gone. Then they filed for clemency in 2006. It was denied. Then in 2008, Dateline stepped in, and um, and that actually made a difference. Mm. They did an episode about the case, and then the court finally ordered an evidentiary hearing on it to determine whether or not he could get a new trial based on all these new witnesses. All these new witnesses for Barry testified including a girl who said that she was 10 years old at the time and she was at the crime scene that night. I'm assuming with- 10 years old? Isn't that crazy? Yes. I'm I'm like, maybe she was with one of her big sisters or something. I don't know. I don't know more to that story. This sounds like a wild, like a, a, a spree kit. Like it, sound, it sounds like a gang-like situation with these girls. Like what was, I, I'm so, this is why I think the movie theater- theory where this is like people who were all at this movie drive-in movie thing were hanging out afterwards because why else would a 10-year-old be with her bigger sister right in the middle of the night unless maybe she had been at the movies with her bigger sister and they were all kind of getting together afterwards so i'm con- i'm continuing to stand by my kim ran into people at the theater yeah i yeah. think it's a strong theory now yeah. Be, this at the center of the rumor was the fact that one of the girls who apparently was kind of the ringleader um, in the in the plan to kill Kim, whether well whether or not it was a plan, was somebody who the reason she did it is because she felt that Kim was making the moves on her on her boyfriend hmm. or on the father of her her child. Yeah, it's unclear she's dating this guy, but it was over a boy, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was apparently over a boy. On the basis of these new witnesses, the judge decides that there is something there, there. So he grants Barry a new trial, and he actually orders his release. Wow. So in 2011, yeah, this is— That's rare. This rare. It's rare. I mean, uh, we've gone through it with Adnan Sayed, but, um, you know, Adnan was not granted release. So in 2011, Barry is now a free man. He can start his life over, but the state does what the state always does, which is appeal that— <laughs> Appeal the grant of a new trial all the way up to the Montana Supreme Court. And in 2013, that Supreme Court panel of seven judges reinstates the conviction Hmm. by a decision of four to three judges. So by one judge, Barry loses, and he actually goes back to prison four years later, which is unbelievable. even worse, I think. It is worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because he gets four years of freedom. And in those four years, he started his life over. He started a business. Yeah. You know, reunited with his family. Anyway, so now he's back in prison. May of 2015, he tries to get resentenced based on the fact that the conviction and sentencing was about a crime that took place when he was 17. So a 100-year sentence is unconstitutional. For folks who don't know, juveniles are not supposed to be sentenced to life under the Supreme Court ruling Alabama versus Miller. But 
because of a little technical loophole, the state wins. So he loses his bid to get resentenced. And then it takes a special bill brought by the state legislation to allow the governor to commute very sentence. Wow. And they do. But but it shows like this incredible like swell of support all the way up to the legislation for Barry. There was a huge movement to help free him. Hmm. Um it's a power of dateline, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, this is this is this is actually a really interesting point because this is what this is why you wanted to get a non Sayed's case in front of the media, right? Because this oh, yeah. is what the this is what a big media outlet can do. Um, Dateline is one of the OG true crime media outlets. Mm-hmm. They also, um, you know, have for a while, not not as much, you know, in before like the 2000s. I mean, they were definitely very much about the wrong, the right guy did it. And now he's in prison. But right. they definitely have brought some some wrongful conviction cases up up the fray. And it sounds like they made a huge difference in this one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a, apparently that was a turning point for Barry in terms of the public getting public support and getting people to believe in his innocence. But you know, so, so Barry was released in November of 2015. But as does happen in a lot of these cases, as far as the state's concerned, the person who killed her was convicted of the crime, hmm. and the case is closed. So nobody else has ever been investigated or arrested for the murder of Kim Niece. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the people who are responsible for her murder, that means likely are still out there just living their lives. You know what yep. I mean? It's living yep. with that. And I, I was talking about this case with my 13-year-old and she's like, how could anybody live with themselves like that? And I said, well, all those cold cases out there and all the wrongful convictions, there's always murderers out there living with themselves. <laughs> they can That's live right. with themselves just fine. That's right. Yeah. And this was like high school, right? So they probably are thinking it was like a high school fever dream and not like the real part of their life. It's amazing what people can talk themselves uh, into and out of when they were, quote, like, I was so young when it happened. I mean, it's likely that they've never recommitted a crime because, you know, statistics show that people who even who do commit crimes when they're in their teens— you know, after they pass a certain age, never reoffend because there is something about the way that your brain functions that does mature and change as you get older. So it's likely that these people or this person or people never reoffended. Um, that being said, doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be punished for this murder. That is unbelievable. And what's also unbelievable to me is that so many people know. Yeah. Who likely did it or who oh, did it. Oh, by name. By name. And the, are the, the, walking the around named. right now. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. It is crazy because, you know, there are three women, oh, well, they were girls at the time, but three young women who have been specifically named over and over by people who say they know, they people who were either there or they have firsthand knowledge. Um, and that none of those three also have cracked over the years and come forward and say, I just got to unburden my soul. It's so much harder to keep a secret like that for so yeah. long and protect each other. Hmm. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's really tragic uh, for Kim niece. And I'm interested in learning about the, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about, about like, you know, juvenile offenders and in many cases, juvenile offenses happen, like you said, like in a very spur of the moment, it's not premeditated. They don't have kind of the ability to really plan something out, like in such a, such a nefarious way is usually something that's like, you know, it'll be a drive-by shooting. It'll be, some, it, it, it's like a, a crime of violence that's like almost spontaneous in a way. But this does show, I mean, like this crime, beating somebody to death takes some, takes some effort, Rebecca. 
it's very intimate. You know, yeah. it's 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 different than the case we wrote about, which was a premeditated murder. Um, but Eric Winhurst was like 300 yards away from Danny Paquette when he shot him. He was just like a, it was a sniper shot, right? Which right. is an quote easier. I mean, I yeah. I can I can I can tell you for me, I, I would never kill anyone, but that would be an easier way to do it than right. being up close, bludgeoning someone to death in front of other people. Yeah. Now, I that's the other thing I think about too is. You know, you have to think about, too, the trauma of the other people who were there who witnessed the crime. Yeah. There's something about that trauma that they're carrying around, too. I wonder if that was what compelled them to come forward and talk. I, I mean, I, that the idea of them just getting away with it, living their lives. And I mean, the the it's such a horrific attack, not only because they it was such a bloody, intimate attack, but then they dragged her and left her in the water, yeah. which is like another added element of like just brutality of this to me. You know what yeah. I mean? Over a boy. Yeah. Like they did that. Maybe they did it because they were like, oh, oh no, I think we actually killed her. I mm-hmm. don't know if the point of the attack was to kill her or just like mess up her face or whatever. But it's the the whole thing is just and who can get away with attacking something like this and walk away with unscathed? Some people had to have bloody clothes and bloody shoes and scratch. You know what I mean? Like, yep. there had to be evidence on them of this attack. And to just imagine like being able to cover that all up, it's it's shocking to me they've gotten away with it. And the the police in that town, I'm sorry, effed it up. <laughs> Y'all sure effed did. it up. Yep. They sure did. Yep. yep. And you know, if you think about too the irony of this murder, Kim was leaving for college, right? Yeah. So even if it was over a boy, she was not going to be in the picture like a few weeks later. Like, yeah, you were you were going to get to be with your boyfriend, or at least he was still going to be around. So yeah, what a waste! You're, you still would have had your baby daddy. Yeah, terrible, yeah. terrible crime. All right, well that's it for that. For folks who have not listened to our episode based on this, definitely check it out. Dime by the river and Rebecca. I want you to tell us what you're up to. My mistake for not mentioning these other stories. And <laughs> what else okay. have I missed? <laughs> no, no, you you captured it all. I would ask anybody who's interested in hearing about uh, true crime journalism, getting reviews of what's worth listening to or checking out in the true crime world to please check out uh, my podcast, Crime Writers On. It's really, really fun. Uh, and of course, listen to You Can't Make This Up from Netflix, where I interview people who make true crime media that, air, uh, that airs on Netflix. Um, and yeah, you can also find me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy. Awesome. Thank you so much. One of my favorite podcasts. I get all my recommendations and recommendations to stay away from shows from you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. This was really fun. Nighty Night is executive produced by Robbie Achadri and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs> 